0: hello and welcome back to the album years with myself and my colleague mr timothy boness hello so once again it's been a long time since we did the last episode january this year i couldn't believe it's been so long it was winter it was the middle of winter when we did the last episode and now mm. it's verging on summer in the, in uh, in england um and it's even worse this time because essentially we stopped halfway through talking about a particular year, 1978, even though we'd split the first half into two episodes because we'd talked so much (laughs) already about 1978.
1: So we've got more to talk about with 1978. We could end up with a a six-part series. I was thinking that a series based on 1978, what a year, even though it was a fantastic year for singles, as we discussed. But I think one of the things is that, yeah, five months since we did the last one, and I've, I've almost forgotten where we were at, what we covered. So we might actually repeat some of the same conversations, which could be interesting because our opinions might change. Because I don't know about you, I've moved on. I'm in the future now. I'm in 1982.
0: You're quite right. But, I mean, it's true to say that we have the same conversations in every episode anyway, don't
1: we? <laughs> in effect, yeah. Uh,
0: which is why we've ended up with the, the drinking game. For some of the listeners who have the drinking game, whenever we mention certain artistes, such as the ham, Eno, is he one of them? Oh, Mark yeah, Hollis, of course. Sylvian.
1: Oh, Fripp. Yeah. Fripp. Yeah. I mean, but you've got to get Fripp in 1978 because he did so much. You've got to get Eno because he did even more. You've got to get Gabriel. You've got to get the Syl in, which I think we did last time. We can't really shoehorn Mark Hollis in because he hadn't even produced his first work at he this wasn't stage. even
0: He wasn't even born at this Well, we'll, well, well, we'll still... We'll try. Yes, OK. So... We probably will cover some of the same ground here because we haven't. Obviously, we don't listen to our own podcast, God forbid. (laughs) So we may find that we, you may find that we're repeating ourselves here. But uh, well, that's just part of the course, isn't it, with this podcast? So let's move ahead, Tim. Um, I think we got as far as talking about um, mainstream artists, and we. I think the last thing we talked about was the Sweet or Sweet and their attempt to to go with the times by being five years behind the times, (laughs) by making their prog rock album level-headed in 1978. I think that is the last conversation we had, which means next up, it's disco and R&B.
1: Good grief. Now, we
0: like like a bit of disco and R&B, don't we? Don't we?
1: We do. I mean, Love You To Bits is testament to that fact.
0: And it it was a cracking year, wasn't it? 1978, you could say it's kind of the peak of... uh, Of disco in a way, couldn't you? But uh, we have Say Chic, uh, the second Chic album comes out this year, which uh, Chock-a-Block with classics.
1: Fantastic album.
0: So maybe let's talk about that. Um, I mean, Chic, you know, Nile Rodgers, still uh, ubiquitous as ever. I think along with Elton John, he's going to be about the most ubiquitous sort of 70s icon uh, that there is right now because he just pops up everywhere, doesn't he? He's uh, he's still playing on top chart albums, and you know he even worked with me. That's how ubiquitous that he is. That is you know, how ubiquitous. Me. I mean, I, I've
1: still not got him to actually mix one of my tracks, but he is ubiquitous. So,
0: sheik, what, what what is it about sheik that makes? I mean, because I listened to this album the other day, it still sounds. So fresh, I mean it was beautifully recorded. I noticed actually it was it was mixed. It was one of the very first albums, probably engineered and mixed by Bob Claremount, who of course gone on to okay. become a legend in terms of making beautiful sounding records, so it was obviously beautifully recorded at the same, at the time. I think it was recorded at the power station in New York. It sounds absolutely amazing, it sounds lush, but there 's something about chic isn 't there that it 's not it it's obviously crossed over in a way that prince we're going we're going to talk about prince too the way that prince kind of crossed over to a much broader demographic didn't he and and it's the same with chic isn't it they kind of appeal to pop and rock fans as well as R&B and disco fans, don't they?
1: Yeah, I think there's a kind of sophistication in their chord voicings and the production, as you said. It does sound incredibly beautiful. And they manage to go from a sort of pummeling funk dance floor sensation to really poignant. And they make that transition incredibly well. And another band at the time who sort of did that, Rose Royce. I remember Rose Royce, but I I, I just remember
0: that hit um, Love Don't, live here anymore was that yeah then? and
1: wishing on a star as well but
0: i think chic well, firstly they've got niall and um niall is actually a bit of a guitar hero isn't he i mean there's a track on this album savoir faire which is basically just a shred fest just a beautiful extended guitar solo mm-hmm. over a gorgeous orchestral arrangement but then the other secret weapon of course is bernard edwards and those bass lines i mean they're just phenomenal aren't they i mean in, in many ways they're kind of the hooks of the songs aren't they those bass lines you kind of remember the bass lines even before you remember the top line melodies a lot of the time yeah uh on songs like la freak and um we are you know we are family which is a sister sledge song but it's essentially chic uh the chic production team there's those fantastic bass lines and of course one of the big songs on this record was covered by the none more white robert wyatt wasn't it (laughs) at last i am free um is just a gorgeous ballad.
1: Oh, it is. It's, it's an absolutely gorgeous ballad. And his version is wonderful because he just does it in a definitively Robert Wyatt style. You know, he absolutely, you know, as he did with um, Elvis Costello's shipbuilding, he makes it his own. But I think the original is absolutely gorgeous. And I was thinking, again, maybe that guitar element is perhaps why they've lasted more, that they had a certain kind of... Quality that crossed over into rock, you know, obviously Nile Rogers produced David Bowie in the early 80s. And there's something of that chic production line sound that they had on their own albums and on the Sister Sedge albums that you can kind of hear in Trevor Horn's productions on Dead CT as well.
0: There's an yeah, attention
1: definitely. to detail in the orchestration.
0: Yeah. It's meticulously produced, isn't it? But there is definitely a strong crossover into rock, and and um, we're going to talk about the ultimate kind of you know poster child for that that kind of phenomenon really here, because the first album this year by Prince came out, and it's it's all there pretty much straight away from the off. Here here is this Wonder Kid um, playing all the instruments himself. But Prince, I mean, we've talked about Prince before. I mean, there's not, there's perhaps not much we can say more about Prince. I, I really like the first two albums. Dirty Mind is really the breakthrough, the third album. But the, the first two albums, you know, already there's a precocious talent there, isn't there? I think that's um, it. I
1: think these albums don't stand out in the way that the later ones do, maybe because they haven't got signature songs. You know, there's no Purple Rain on this. But I think they're a fantastic... Showcase for a talented artist. Again, in my sort of Academy of the Underrated um, theory, that is, if an artist like Prince only made this album or only made his first two albums, I still think this would be a cult artist. You know, that he went on to greatness is not surprising given this. And, you know, there are lots of other artists like that. You know, we've said before, even David Bowie's 1967 debut. It clearly isn't his best work. Yet there is a talent and an intelligence there. And I think the same goes for even, you know, Thin Lizzy's first two albums that often aren't celebrated. Similar thing. If they'd have left it there, they'd be seen as this great crossover of, Celtic rock and Van Morrison folk influences and that's it with Prince you know there's a, there's a lot there and I guess it's been overshadowed by the genius that followed.
0: He's obviously not as confident as he's going to be here he's he's still hiding behind that sort of rather quiet falsetto delivery on everything he hasn't sort of discovered his big rock voice yet has he? No. But still still great as you say just judge these records purely on the, on, on their own merits they are Terrific R and B disco records. Hmm. What about this one then? One more, one more to talk about in this category. This is a mad one, isn't it? Marvin Gaye, hear my dear.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, hear my mad, dear is one of those albums that I think the album years was made for. Really, um, if people don't know, is this them, the
0: tales from? Is this the tales hmm. from topographic oceans of R and B? I don't know because
1: I think um, the secret life of plants, Stevie Wonder, might be that.
0: Okay, so what is this? What would be the analogy? What would you, this you know, one be?
1: Um, would it be the trout Must replica? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> it wouldn't be that either. I mean, if people don't know this album, it's uh, it's a double album. It's quite excessive. It has some very beautiful tracks. And it was made because Marvin had got divorced. And he got divorced, I believe, from Barry Gordy's daughter. And Barry Gordy was the person who ran Motown. And basically all of his money on this album was going to his wife. And so he called it, here, my dear, because it was his entire income. Everything was going to his But it, it goes wife.
0: beyond that, doesn't it? Because every single song on the record is about her and about the fact he's giving, your, giving her all the <laughs> proceeds, all his income. Is so it's, it's mad, isn't it? I mean, who would do this? Who would do... Basically, you know... Talk about airing your dirty
1: washing in public. Well, I mean, to be fair, that, isn't it? it is one of his maddest albums, but I think he does get even madder because there's that album that was released posthumously, which is a Dream of a Lifetime, I think, and it has lots of offcuts from earlier albums, which are quite sensible. And then it's got some very Prince-inspired tracks. And there's one of them I always remember because called, I think it's called something like Masochistic Lady, and he sings it in a Cockney accent. So it's like some kind of really lascivious Prince electro-funk piece, but with Marvin Gaye singing in a Cockney accent. I love you, my masochistic lady.
0: Yeah, is that when he was living in Belgium? He went off to live in this sort of little town in Belgium, didn't he? I mean, he completely lost his mind uh, during this period. He went
1: off, yeah. lived in a town in Belgium, which I've been to that town as well. And it's by the sea and allegedly just used to go and play darts with the local fishermen at night.
0: And would you like to pop down to your local pub and find Marvin Gaye? I would
1: love to have a game of arrows with Marvin Gaye. Even like the ghost billions. of Marvin Gaye. Yeah, bar billiards, I'd do that.
0: But it's a terrific folly, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, basically the whole thing runs, It's it's 80 minutes long and it basically runs pretty much continuously, doesn't it? The tracks are all seven, eight minutes long. They ramble on and on and on with these kind of monologues. But it's one of those records, it's just a beautiful place to visit, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing particularly memorable on this record, but it's just that you sort of immerse yourself in this mad kind of folly and you can only kind of step back and admire it in a way, can't you? Yeah,
1: maybe one track, When Did You Stop Loving Me? When Did I Stop Loving You? That one, which I think is quite a poignant account of the death of a relationship, and that has a lovely melody. And his singing's Gorgeous on it and oh, it's amazing. Yeah. There are some great harmonies. This is where he does his really nice um dual, you know, his his double track vocals. Fantastic on this. Um yeah, I mean you're right, it doesn't really have particularly any breakthrough melody as there as there were on I mean, obviously, you know, the fantastic uh um, let's
0: face it, it's a massive a massive sprawling tuneless folly. Exactly the kind of record that you and I will hold up as the very <laughs> purpose of this
1: podcast uh, and, and the very pinnacle of R&B and the pinnacle of Marvin Gaye's artistic um, statements yeah. yeah
0: and the sort of record we would encourage anyone with even a modicum of curiosity about what's out there to go and investigate it's brilliant so let's let's move on to to rock and metal so let's I'm just having a quick shifty down this list here Lots of live albums this year, isn't it? Oh God,
1: it's is, it is the era of the live album. Obviously, "Live and Dangerous" is one of the big live ones. Live and dangerous. Um, I thought "Obsession" by UFO. That was one of their best albums. Quite a sophisticated record with um, nice use of What's dynamics. On well, only you can rock me for a start. Cherry. A few metal bangers. Yeah. It's it's boss rock. It's kind of it's if Bruce Springsteen were in a hard rock band, it would be UFO. I think there's an aspect of that.
0: What can you say about Never Say Die by Black Sabbath?
1: Now, that is a really interesting folly because I don't think it's that bad. I think the title track is is a great Ozzy Osbourne pop tune, well worthy of being heard. And the album is one of their most formless and eclectic. And I sort of like it for that because it's even got a miniature jazz rock instrumental. You know, this is a band that is in search of a direction. It has... The short, sharp shock of Never Say Die, great single. It has a funny jazz rock instrumental. It has attempts at blues. I sort of like it. See, you can't be talking about Black Sabbath
0: and describing them as funny. <laughs> just, it just doesn't, you know, this is, this, you can't say that about Sabs. Funny, a funny track. You can't have a yeah, funny I Black mean... Sabbath track. They're not a funny band.
1: They're disciples of the devil. They're disciples of the devil. Abadar they I mean you know, I think this is their true spirit. This is their, you know, this is their tomato. <laughs> true spirit. Isn't it? This is their <laughs> true spirit. They're a comedy band. Basically. I mean it reminds me a bit of Tomato by Yes in that at least this is an album being made by the band members in the studio, honestly, and they honestly haven't got much of a clue of what they're doing in some respects because they're all over the show, producing some great music, some producing some mediocre music, producing some questionable music. And that's exactly what Tomato is as well. But I sort of prefer these albums to what immediately follows, you know, The Heaven and Hell with Dio or Drama with Trevor Horn as much as I love Horn because I think those albums... They're very sure of themselves. They're almost like producer-led albums. They're almost like they know their place in the marketplace, if you like, and this album sure as hell doesn't.
0: Yes, and I think this is a theme that we've come back to time and time again, isn't it, on the show, that sometimes, you know, when a band has kind of lost its way, sometimes they come up with interesting music despite themselves because it's that kind of flailing and searching that becomes interesting to the exactly. to, to the sort of music to the music nerd whereas as you say a lot of the other bands on this list are kind of doing their thing aren't they maybe we can move on to to ground where i feel a little bit more sure of myself one offs one offs now what do i mean what do we mean by one offs we mean the people that don't kind of fit into any sort of other category really don't we um and there's you've got people like Kate Bush Frank Zappa Beefheart Big Star the Residents Magma The ham is on the list. Let's talk about the ham. The ham. What a year for the ham! So, the future now. Yeah. Um, something a bit different about this record, isn't it? The the it's the ham sort of confronting the punk ethos in a way, in a different way to they did on Nadir's big. Nadir's big chance. He was almost ahead of the curve, and the future now. It's almost like he's worrying that he's behind the
1: curve, isn't (laughs) it? Yes. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of tracks about aging on this as well
0: pushing 30 uh, is the is that opening i think it's the opening track on the record isn't it pushing 30 how extraordinary to think that somebody pushing 30 would feel like you know the rest of the industry might be looking at them as as a kind of old fart you know as washed up as old you know long in the tooth
1: yeah, but I think that's probably how punk and New Wave made a lot of people feel, although the irony is, as we've pointed out on the show before, that bands like The Stranglers and The Police were actually older in some cases than many of the progressive rock and classic rock artists and um, and were obviously fans of them as well. Um, I mean, Future is possibly my favourite Peter Hamill album because I think, again, it's one of those albums that a little like Never Say so Dei, is very instinctive, is quite experimental, is him just flexing his muscles in the studio. But this one is quite focused, quite intense. And uh, as you say, he's gone from being ahead of the curve to being frightened about not being ahead of the curve. And I think he once more has pushed himself forward. You know, this is an album that perhaps has got more in common with experimental post-punk artists like Eilis and Gaza. You know, he's... home studio experiments and um i remember him saying that phil collins was very impressed with it because he'd i think taken some of his advance money from charisma and bought a fairly primitive home studio and so you can hear things like refrigerator buzzes on tracks and this inspired phil collins to do the same and that produced Face value, and I think I mentioned at the time that I thought face value, in some ways, as much as being a kind of a shop window for Colin's eclecticism, there was something about it that tied it into Peter Hamill, or as i said, someone like Alison Gaza, this DIY post punk mentality that was um, in the air at the time. And I, I think it's a tremendously strong album, very experimental use of sounds you know effects units and so on mm. and it does go from the tender to the brutal and bruising really
0: but it's, it's funny isn't it because even the cover is like charting a transition from old to new isn't it it's this kind of very special fold-out cover where he's got his big old hippie beard on one half yeah and then he's shaved it all off on the other half so it's almost charting like this process of reinvention, even in the visual side of, of, you know, of the album.
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: The same time, he's also, this year, he's made what I think might be my favourite Van de Graaff Generator album, which, very unusually for me, because I'm not usually a big fan of live albums, but this is an exceptional live album. This is Van de Graaff Generator Vital live, which is one of the most brutal, if not the most brutal and abrasive record surely ever made by someone associated with the progressive rock movement. Would you not agree?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's savage. And the thing is that it doesn't flinch in terms of its time signature escapades, in terms of its epic pieces. And yet it's completely at one with punk. Because
0: as you say, there's, there's no compromise in terms of the complexity of the music, but the actual delivery of it is so visceral and so aggressive, isn't it? I mean, it's surely, it's surely a response to to punk. It's surely, again, another manifestation of the ham kind of responding to, to punk rock,
1: right? It's impossible to know, isn't it, you know, what they were thinking, because hey, there was so little compromise and it effortlessly fits. And you can see, you know, in the same way that a band like The Cardiacs, I suppose, you can see how punk fans are going to get a great deal out of this and how progressive rock fans are going to get a great deal out of it. So these two completely opposing areas, in a way, merge effortlessly. And, um, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's sort of difficult to think of anything quite comparable. And, you know, Hamill, in a sense, doesn't even alter his vocal. His vocal, you know, this Hendrix of the voice approach that he has is maybe dialed up a bit, but it's 100% Peter Hamel. You know, you can see how somebody like John Lydon was absolutely thrilled by it. And it would have been, you know, as an experienced live, I can imagine absolutely devastating.
0: Oh, he sounds absolutely possessed on some of the songs. Things like Ship of Falls or Door, or even the, the, uh, the reinvention of um, Pioneers Overseas absolutely possessed the whole band sound possessed
1: and you know it was kind of recorded with no overdubs you know whereas you know we're talking about other live albums this year live and dangerous which you know i think is a good album but as the band and tony visconti have admitted only about 15 to 20 percent of that album at most is actually live it's overdubs in the studio corrections this is live because they didn't have any alternative and I wonder if part of the tension is that they knew this was going to be the last gig by Van de Graaf because I think it was pretty hastily organized, the sound check was hasty, they couldn't record it as well as they wanted. And for various reasons, because they didn't have enough money to carry on, this was going to be Van de Graaff's last statement. And as you say, even the classical musicians, Charles Dickey the cellist, they're all going for it.
0: Well, firstly, just to say the Thin Lizzy overdub thing is disputed by various members of the band, so uh, we should probably say allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly, there's a lot of overdubbing on that record. So let's move on. So other one-offs this year, well, we've got Kate. Kate is coming onto the scene. Kate Bush is coming onto the scene with two remarkable albums. I mean, what a remarkable debut. Um, The arrival of a new talent, the age of 19, completely... Would you say fully formed? I mean, obviously she's going to develop a lot over the next few albums, but she's kind of there straight away, isn't she? With this masterpiece, uh, one of the greatest singles of all time, of course, to lead yes. off lead off your career. Well, I mean, wow, what a what an arrival uh, with Wuthering, Wuthering Heights as your debut single, but the album and, and Lionheart later this year too. And I think she may probably think. Um, these, In fact I'm pretty sh- I'm, I'm pretty much sure I know that she thinks These albums are a little bit Too produced A little bit gauche in a way Lyrically and, and musically But I, I absolutely adore them um, I, I think I think she's already Got a sound completely of her own It's very hard to hear influences And as you were saying the, You were making the point earlier If she'd just been judged On these first two albums If yeah. she'd suddenly disappeared From the scene as quickly as she came And she'd just left the kick inside And heart. Behind, I mean, she'd still be seen as one of the greats, wouldn't she?
1: I I think you're right, yeah. I mean, there aren't really many precedents. I mean, people used to say Joni Mitchell, Laura Nero to an extent, but she's got her own very eccentric, very British voice. And, yeah, I mean, she's one of the artists where I have bought all of her recordings from the beginning. You know, I bought Wuthering Heights, loved it, and then absolutely fell in love with the man with the child in his eyes. I thought that was exquisite. Um, The album I adored Out of the two Strangely I know it's regarded As the lesser But I've always preferred Lionheart Because I know She felt it was rushed I think it's a It's a more coherent album And there's something Quite magical About this, and I think you know, I've I've said this on many occasions that this was an album that I fell in love with during a really difficult time. I hated school, and my family life was appalling. And this provided a sense of beauty, harmony, mystery, strangeness that I used to lose myself in. And particularly, you know, the man with the child in his eyes, and. Lionheart, I'd play endlessly into the night.
0: Yeah, Lionheart, I I agree with you. I love this album. I prefer it to kick inside. It's got my favourite Kate Bush song on it. Well, one of my favourite Kate Bush songs on it. Wow. Mm. Um, You know, lyrically brilliant. Uh, Obviously, the cover of this album is is also fantastic as well. It's just... Everything is just like fully formed, it seems. And of course, when you kind of find out a little bit more about her history, her history, she'd spent two years kind of developing herself before EMI kind of let her record her first album. And in fact, I think Man with a Child in, in His Eyes is recorded two or three years before the rest of the Yeah, album. I mean, is she's something right?
1: like 15 or 16 on that. I think it's one of the Dave Gilmore recordings. Yeah. yeah.
0: And she'd been studying with, with uh, Lindsay Kemp, I think Mime, yeah. for a couple of years. And I think a lot of that was also her, se- you know, herself kind of putting the brakes on her career and saying, no, I want to I wanna develop my art. I want to develop my talent. I want to develop my craft more before I'm launched into the public eye. And mm. it kind of pays off massively, doesn't it? I mean, what a, what a year she has. I mean, she by the end of the year, she's a superstar.
1: And deservedly so, yeah.
0: Ironically, it's probably the point at which she realizes she doesn't want to be... Uh, a superstar, you know. Um, is, it, is it the following year she does her one and only tour, I think, isn't it? The, uh, it is, movie.
1: yeah. I mean, I remember her. She was everywhere at the time. There was a music show presented by Pisa Cook that she was on. She was on Ask Aspel, if you ever remember that. I do, yeah. Uh, p- playing the title track um, from Lionheart, you know. Um, so the, there was a massive amount of coverage. I think the music papers were slightly more sceptical about her at the time. There was a sense that in some ways a hippie had been beamed into 1978 and perhaps didn't deserve the success. But um luckily I think the massive talent overcame any prejudice that was in the music papers. And of course, by eighty-five, the music papers love her, you know.
0: She was so unique, I think it's hard to it's hard to dismiss her um as anything in particular. She's just created almost from the very beginning, the very opening moments of her career, she's created a completely unique world and a completely unique universe, the sort of world where she can, you know, she can get Percy Thrower on her album. and <laughs> uh, You know, I mean, cr- crazy, crazy things like that, you know. Anyway. Um,
1: don't mention Rolf Harris. Whatever you do, don't mention Rolf Harris. You've just mentioned him. So oh. let,
0: let, moving swiftly on then. So other one-offs this year, a couple of a couple of albums from from Frank Zappa this year. The live album, Zappa in New York, and Studio Tan, which I think was recorded two or three years earlier, actually. But uh, but anyway, yes. Um, and then his old compadre, Captain Beefheart, uh, put out Shiny Beast,
1: uh, Backchain
0: Puller, which um, I'm not familiar with that record. Are I you really familiar? like that. Yeah, I am actually. Okay. It's,
1: it's one of his most successful. It's, it's a really odd album in that it's. That album that falls between his quite accessible Virgin albums in the mid-70s, which I never thought were bad, you know, the Blue Jeans and Moonbeams. I thought there's some gorgeous stuff on that, you know, tracks like Observatory Crest are amongst his best for me. Um, so even Bad Beefheart is, is quite enjoyable. And it's somewhere between that accessible, tuneful Beefheart and trap Mask Replica. Um, So it kind of hits quite a sweet spot for me, this album. And he's got a new band and it has slightly new wave edge, which of course is going to become more pronounced on Dock at the Radar Station and Ice Cream for Crow, where it almost becomes full on sort of new wave post-punk beef heart. But yeah, I think it's a really underrated album. And then we've got
0: Big Star's third album, at least a couple of bona fide classics on there, isn't there? Holocaust and... uh...
1: Well, Well, that's an album that is a complete and utter diabolical mess in terms of recording direction but it does have some moments of exquisite magic you know painful pieces and i think that was constructed over a period of three years wasn't it i'm
0: not i'm not sure it, it's definitely a patchy album it doesn't have the cohesion of the first couple of records but as you say it's got some real highlights what else do we have one off this year we have magma making uh, the album attack uh we have annette peacock's extremes the art bears hopes and fears, which is a, a kind of Henry Cow continuation in a way of Henry Cow, isn't it? Um, yeah, uh, it's it's Chris Cutler, Fred Frith, and Dagma Krause from Henry Cow, basically carrying the torch forward. Then we've got uh, now this is a mad one, isn't it? This is the beginning of Scott Walker, kind of the 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 sort of the. Renaissance years of Scott Walker. This is the beginning of Scott coming back after his painting and decorating years because this is, but it's a funny album, isn't it? Because there's basically three, three guys in the band and they kind of split the album three ways. So they all get like a third of the record. And the other two guys are doing pretty much pedestrian M.O.R. aren't they? And then Scott has his four songs in this, on this record. Now, the last anybody heard of Scott at the time was he was doing country and western records <laughs> and covers from cheesy except, movies.
1: Except they're good albums, if we ever get onto those. Some of those are gorgeous. Even at his worst, he can sing beautifully and the arrangements are very good. They are the middle of the road and I guess that they seem like a retreat after those spectacular Scott's one to four.
0: Let's be honest. Let's be honest, Tim. It feels like Scott's given up on those records, doesn't it? It feels like he's just doing what's expected of him. The cabaret, the bow tie, the chicken in a basket. the ca- n- Nice arrangements. Can't fault the voice, of course. It feels like he's just doing what's expected. But of him, he it?
1: does chicken doesn't in a basket better than anybody. And of I'm course, not when he disputing
0: to- that. I'm not disputing. He's
1: top quality chicken. (laughs) He's top quality chicken. Top quality chicken. And when he played the chicken in a basket circuit, he was often booed, I think. He did not go down well. So although I think it's top quality chicken, clearly the customers in Doncaster actually preferred the chicken that was in the basket rather than the top quality chicken on the stage.
0: Imagine how that made Scott feel. He's compromised everything. He's (laughs) he's sold out. He's gone for the big chicken market (laughs) and people still don't like it.
1: They people don't still like don't it. like
0: it. No wonder Scott ended up doing painting and decorating for the next three <laughs> years. Anyway, cut to the chase. Here he's come back. He's gone back to his old bunch of buddies, the Walker brothers, and they've made this record called Night Flights. Now, what can you say about Scott's tracks except this is anything but middle of the road, isn't it? This is the beginning of Scott the visionary, Scott the I don't give a shit what people want from me. How to describe the four songs on the... Well, let's start... I mean, I'm a big fan of the first couple of tracks. The Shut Up! And uh, Fat Mama Kick. But I think the track we have to talk about is The Electrician. Because The Electrician is really the future of of Scott, isn't it? That's the song that points to the future of Scott
1: they, I think they all do. um, Because if you think of... And so on, and Fat Mama Kick, they've got that beat that you hear on Climate of Hunter. So I think, if nothing else, it predicts climate of Hunter. The other three tracks, or um, yeah, The Electrician is no doubt the atmospheric standout. And of course, preceding this, Walker Brothers. So Scott, he's done his chicken in a basket; it's failed. He reforms the Walker Brothers, and on the cover of that album, if you remember, it's on No Regrets. They're actually there. So you've got these three elegant former sex symbol Americans, and they've got Newcastle Brown Ale cans on the cover of No Regrets. (laughs) um, (laughs) Which was the previous record. Which is, yeah. And and I think um, that does okay and they actually do have a hit. So it kind of brings him back to Top of the Pops despite the Newcastle Brown Ale being crushed in his hand. Um, And I think this was their last attempt again it's a bit like vital they kind of knew they weren't going to get the funding for another album so i think they all decided they write the material themselves this time and scott sort of had executive producer role on it and yeah his four tracks um which were released in, a, in an amazingly stupid move by the label they were released as the shutout ep all four tracks you know, that's all you need. Really? Yeah. At the time. That's
0: all. I, I, I'm okay. I'm going to go find that, and I can get rid of my album. Yeah, exactly. That's
1: all you. That's all you that need. That is all you need. And those four tracks are stunning. It kind of comes from nowhere. So you basically you've done the chicken in a basket. You've done the country and western albums. You've done the no regrets, rather nice but MOR hit single, and then you come in with these pieces that. You know once more it's a bit like david bowie of that period you know this idea of this new wave no wave. There's, there's bowie this idea that bowie transcends all genres and suddenly walker transcends genres and you could argue if there's any influence on them it might be bowie's heroes and low that he could have influenced you know so in other words somebody who was influenced by walker is now influencing walker there's an aspect of that but they go way beyond in some respects and i think of course, Bowie and Eno then heard these tracks and were influenced by them. So, um, yeah, they're astonishing. And the other tracks are bizarre, aren't they? Because you've got uh, two tracks by one of them, four tracks by another. I think it might be Gary Leeds has the two tracks and John Walker has the four.
0: But it's interesting, isn't it, that Scott's tracks are the first four tracks on the album. Yeah. So it's for four tracks, it's one of the most incredible records you've ever heard. And then, of course, it just falls off a cliff, doesn't it? Which is why I like the idea of the four-track EP. I'm going to see if I can find a copy of that. Um, I mean, okay, Scott, he's burnt his chicken. (laughs) Yeah. Right, he's he's had his chicken. He's been been roasting (laughs) his chicken. It's got badly burned in the northern working men's clubs. They've had their MOR crossover hit, right, okay, with no regrets. Now, what would the the sane pop star do at that point? He would say, "Oh." i'm back i've had a hit with this no regrets now let's consolidate that let's make an album of full of those kind of songs but he doesn't they did
1: they did another album lines i think came afterwards okay
0: i have to s- scrub this bit then <laughs> made a terrible
1: terrible error or you can keep it in keep the errors in people need to know no. they're fallible no
0: i okay. can edit out my edit out my errors okay Anyway, but you're right. I mean, the first one the, track the, the Scott tracks, they are kind of like the prototype for what he's going to do on, on Climate of Hunter. Six years later. Mm. What does he do for the next six years? Paint, is what paint I want and
1: decorating.
0: Painting and decorating. He's gone back to painting and decorating. But isn't that strange that he kind of creates the template for Climate of Hunter and then disappears for six years before actually coming back and...
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's incredible. I mean, you know, his entire career is utterly bizarre but it is filled with these magical moments and these you know he, he's genuinely an artist who you can say does floor a listener does surprise a listener you know imagine the Walker Brothers fan of the mid 60s hearing Scott three and Scott four imagine that Walker Brothers fan then hearing the electrician and lyrically as well he manages to completely reinvent himself these are very odd, poetic, fragmented, quite enigmatic pieces.
0: It's it's one of the most amazing artistic breakthroughs I can possibly think of, you know. Possibly only rivaled by, and here we go, get drinks drinks <laughs> on standby, drinks on standby, the transition from Colour of Spring to Spirit of Eden. Um, in terms of how to shock your record company. I'm gonna give an I'm another gonna raise one. me. Yeah.
1: For the drinking game. I'm gonna give you two for the drinking game here. On, Peter Gabriel III did the same in a way, completely reinvented his musical vocabulary and the American record company hated it so much, they dropped him. And Japan's Tin Drum to an extent as well.
0: They're great records. I think the, the transition from Peter Gabriel II to three is not that big. Quite honestly. I think it's enormous. It's not. <laughs> Just uh, some other one-offs in this category. Oh, have we ever talked about Kevin Coyne on, on the podcast before?
1: We might have mentioned him. I mean, again, he's another eccentric.
0: We love him, don't
1: we? We love
0: him. Who doesn't? Well, probably most people, <laughs> He's quite an acquired taste, isn't he, Kevin? I mean, I remember hearing records early on, and I remember buying Marjorie Razorblade, you know, yeah. a very, very early record in his career, first one he recorded for Virgin, And I was expecting something – I think I was expecting something a little bit closer to the ham or something, some sort of tortured Mm. singer-songwriter. And, of course, it's not that, is it? Because he's very, very influenced by blues music, for a start, rhythm and blues music. But I think when you finally buy into his personality and you kind of understand just how strange and how he kind of twists this idea – of rhythm and blues and blues music, that it kind of falls into place, doesn't it? And here we've got a couple of records. He's said two records this year, which are kind of, again, a bit like The Ham. They're kind of flirting with a slightly more new wave aesthetic, aren't they? Slightly more DIY sounding aesthetic. He's got rid of his sort of band of session yeah. musicians. Um, Andy Summers was in his band until the, the previous record, funnily enough. And he's going for a little bit more of a stripped down, experimental kind of new wave approach, certainly on millionaires and teddy bears, anyway. Mm. How would you, how do you describe Kevin Coyne to someone that's never, you know, kind of never heard him before? Is Hamill the closest sort of comparison? I'm not sure, although they
1: knew one another. Um, I mean, I remember Peter once told me, you know, because they got the Derby connection. They were both um, from Derby. And Peter said that he was doing one gig and Kevin Coyne was there and completely drunk and shouting at him throughout the gig. And this was not very helpful, but they were they were friends. And um, another friend of mine saw um, a Kevin Coyne gig. I think it was in the early 80s. And he said, uh, you know, I'm good when I'm depressed. And I'll tell you, I'm fucking depressed. And this is the beginning of the game. Well
0: I mean that's the thing I think that's why it works for me it's so dark isn't it when you start reading the lyrics and the delivery also is unhinged isn't it and of course his his uh, I think his history came from his exp- his kind of lyrical sort of you know subject matter a lot of time came from his history and his knowledge of mental illness because yeah. he worked in a mental hospital so a lot of his characters were these kind of mentally disabled people and he's kind of channeling these people. And of course, he obviously had his own demons too. So it all kind of comes out.
1: You're entirely right. But what, of course, that misses out is that he was nearly a mainstream hit in a way that I don't think someone like Peter Hamill could have been. Because even on his first in his first band, Siren, who were slightly more conventional blues rock band, they still had mad moments or unusual ballads. And the material they recorded outside of the albums is very strange, which has kind of been released in um, subsequent years. Um, His first album, Case History, is where he does what you're saying. He's actually Mm. speaking from the perspective of the mentally ill people that he was working with. But what he does is sometimes very tender conventional ballads, sometimes really rollicking blues rock moments. And one of the stories about him, which isn't apocryphal, is that The Doors wanted him to replace Jim Morrison when Jim Morrison... Had died and he said that he turned it down because he didn't want to wear the leather pants you know was his reason for it but you can understand it when you listen to the Siren albums and his early solo albums there are tracks where actually he's doing the Chicken Shack he's doing the Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac and he's doing it really well so he can be a conventional blues rocker and a conventional balladeer like Van Morrison but then as you say it goes into these demented little miniatures and one of the best albums for that is Beautiful Extremes which contained a lot of his John Peel sessions and b-sides very interesting
0: he's he's a great actor isn't he because he it seems like he's always taking on a character he plays characters in his songs doesn't he a lot yeah Um, at least it feels like that way to me but it's also what I think what's wonderful about it and I've I've always been attracted to these kind of artists where superficially it sounds like what they're doing is quite generic but actually when you look beneath the surface something is wrong something is twisted something is perverted and it kind of draws you in i'm just trying to think of another good example of of something like that that um, do you know what i'm saying superficially you could listen to kevin Coyne. it just sounds like a sort of you know sort of blues singer songwriter but if you allow yourself to be drawn in and you engage with the characters and you engage with the lyrics, and, of course, there are these wonderfully strange musical moments too, aren't they? Particularly on these albums from this era, aren't they? He ended up working with Robert Wyatt. Yeah, and- he
1: gets stranger and stranger. The Ruts were his backing band. I mean, there's one album that he does, it's a double album, Sanity, Sanity Stomp, Stomp. Yeah. yeah. One album has got The Ruts as his backing band. The other has got Robert Wyatt and Brian, Brian Godding as his backing And that's where the strangeness really comes into the music. And there are a few um, albums from the early 80s in particular. There's one which is a demented electro pop. remember there's one album, Politics, and the first side is him doing an acoustic singer-songwriter album, which is pretty intense. And the second side is him doing a demented electro pop album on the cheap. But it sounds like if Soft Cell had two pence studio budget. With Kevin Coyne ranting over it, and
0: I like it. Yeah, I like it. He, he's he's truly unique, isn't he? I mean, there's nobody else before or since that sounds quite like him. It's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know how how else to describe what he does. I think just go and check out check out Kevin Coyne and and don't give up easily. I think he's one of those artists you do yeah. have to kind of work <clears throat> a little bit well, at, at, at. And, and also get
1: thing. you know get the wrong album and it's too experimental in the way that Tra- R- Mass Replica is for people. Get the wrong album and it's way too conventional, a bit like yes. Blue Jeans and yeah. Moonbeams. And you'll be wondering what the hell we're talking about. But it is a career path. And his later albums are fantastic. He did, he sort of went off because he had a nervous breakdown in the early 80s and then went to live in um, Nuremberg, I think in Germany and got a German pickup band and produced a couple of very conventional albums but towards the later part of his career he made some albums with his son Robert Coyne and they are as good as his late 70s early 80s output fantastic records and I saw him live in the early 90s a couple of times and he was a driven performer you know this was somebody who had demons and you were lost in his world of demons when he sang it was stunning really he always sounded
0: older than his years too. I remember, you know, even on that first album for Virgin, Marjorie Razorway, yeah. he's writing songs about old ladies in Eastbourne. <laughs> kind of those kind of those kind of characters pop up in his songs time and time again, don't they? These are not these are not the hip these are not the sort of hip <laughs> dudes he's singing about.
1: No, not at all. And, and as, as well, he was one of the first people to kind of sing about old rock and rollers who were adrift in the modern world He's, he wrote a series of uh, short stories a few short story collections and they're very funny and very good and it's a bit like uh, a more acidic alan bennett and they are exactly the characters of his songs brought to life in short stories
0: yeah so we're big kevin Coyne fans here on this podcast and i'm not sure we've ever talked to any length about him uh, before let's move on to another category um you've got you've you've created a category here the old embrace the new. So we're talking about artists here, really, that have kind of gone with the new wave zeitgeist. Now, we've we've discussed a few already that we could say that about Peter Hamill, Kevin Coyne, but there are others. And um, a couple of here I don't know, maybe you want to give a, a quick mention to these records, Tim, what, what Lou Reed is doing with Street Hassle, and Nick Lowe is doing on Jesus of Cool that makes you come to that conclusion. What is it about these records?
1: Um, well, I think Lou Reed always had it in him and i think he knew he was hugely influential on the new music scene in new york and america in general and it's a strong album the title track is is an epic i mean that's something a bit like vital it's unflinching it's arguably poetic intense epic and a bit like patty smith it just manages to tap into that new york scene of the moment while not really um flinching and its ambition and Uh, Bruce Springsteen, who's pretty ubiquitous this year, he appears on the album as well. Um, The Nick Lowe album is just great fun. It's almost like a compilation album. This is him... Playing with many many styles of music, and it has the the hit single um, "I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass," oh, okay. which you will yeah, remember. That, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's it's really inventive type production. So I was talking earlier about you know Kevin Coyne sounding like soft sell on a two p budget, and Nick Lowe always used to kind of knock out albums and be proud of how quickly he recorded. But there's a, there's a really attractive roughness about his production, but he's clearly quite a sophisticated songwriter, and a couple of the tracks do um that paul mccartney thing which of course paul mccartney does this year on london town he still has tracks that do this where he will start a song and two minutes in it becomes an entirely different song i think uncle albert albert admiral halsey is one of the best examples of that but um low is clearly really sort of he's aware of songwriting traditions and songwriting innovation so it's a nice combination of of the rough raw and contemporary and and the quite classic okay so we've also
0: got um Hawkwind as Hawk lords 25 years on uh this year which is a good record um another of the series of records with Bob Calvert but again a slightly more new wave edge to it I think Yeah, very
1: strongly. I think they do it brilliantly, and they have that slightly dissonant Frip Bowie's, you know, Frip Bowie Heroes approach on their albums of this period. And I think uh, they really pull it off. Actually, I mean, really pared down production, quite punchy rhythm section, dissonant uh, guitar. I, I thought it was quite an effective reinvention for Hawkwind during this time.
0: It's a good record, but it's part of a continuum of records with, with this kind yeah, of Yeah, it, it is, so, yeah. There's about
1: three or four of them.
0: So Quark, Strangers and Charm, which was the previous year. We've got PXR5 yeah. coming up next year. Yeah, it's, it's a series of records that definitely, as you say, um, have reinvented their sound in that context. And
1: Calvert and, sounds the part, doesn't he? I think that's
0: the main thing, is the Calvert's got that kind of slightly arch, new wave delivery down, hasn't he? Um, mm. Slightly camp two um drastic plastic by bebop deluxe uh bill nelson another artist that's never content to rest on his laurels and is always looking to evolve and to change it up now the interesting about this record he knew it was going to be the last record it was the the quote-unquote contractual obligation record before he moved on to the masterpiece i think that came out the following year red noise um sound on sound um but drastic plastic is kind of a step towards that isn't it with his old band Mm. um it's sort of incorporating slightly more of a new wave but also interestingly kind of that prefiguring in a way that kind of gary newman omd Mm -hmm. ultravox john fox um sort of synth synth pop element too is he's kind of ahead of the curve here a bit isn't he really
1: I think he is, and he always said that he'd written a lot of this material in 77 and couldn't get it out early enough. Um, It's one of my favourite Bebop Deluxe albums, if not my favourite, and in some ways I prefer it to Red Noise. It's not quite as frantic as Red Noise, and um, it's coming out of, again, Bowie's Heroes. There's certainly an element of that influencing it, but it's a very strong album in its own right. And, and the band sound good, you know, although it's not as radical a shift as Red Noise, I think with the the drum processing, John Leckie's drum processing on it is really inventive. And as you say, it kind of predates a lot of electro pop from 82 and, you know, there's, you know OMD, John Fox aspects of that. And um, it's to do with the compositions, but it's also to do with the use of synths and the use particularly of uh, drum
0: processing. Absolutely. I th- he'd clearly been listening to the Bowie Berlin records and, and some craft work, but he's, as everything that Bill does, it, you know, it just comes out sounding like him, which is great. It's, it's a wonderful thing. The whole thing, the whole notion of 1978 as the year that things like progressive rock and AOR were swept away by a tidal wave uh, of of young men with safety pins and a sneer, it, you know, we've discussed that, that that's obviously a complete fallacy and many of the biggest records of the era were still things like Bat Out of Hell, Breakfast in America, um, Out of the Blue by ELO. War and of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. And looking down this list of progressive rock artists, what they were doing this year, now there's no question that things were changing, but not very fast because there is still some you know, classic progressive rock being made here, isn't there? Um, there are other bands like Genesis and Camel who are kind of in, tra- in transition towards a more pop-based style. But we've also got things like the first UK album. We've got Heavy yeah. Horses by Jethro Tull. We've got Hemispheres by Rush. We've got Incantations by Mike Oldfield, a double album with four 20-minute-long tracks <laughs> on it. Um yeah. So in another sense, progressive rock is... As alive and well as ever, and these these records are doing well as well, aren't they? I mean, it's not like they're they're coming out to you know to indifference. They're still selling. They're still doing well. Um, so you know, th- this is a pretty good year, isn't it, for progressive rock? When you you really you know, common wisdom should say that 1978 should be a bad year for progressive rock, but it's a great year for. I mean, okay, we talked about Tomato and Love Beach, maybe often held up as Reasons why progressive rock you know was in its death throes in nineteen seventy eight but here we have evidence for the for the defense, don't we in this sense uh,
1: we do, and some of those albums are really quite alive. I mean, you could argue that the incantations album is progressive in the old sense and the new sense because he's drawing in influence from what was then pretty unknown, the New York classical minimalism of Steve Reich and um Philip Glass. He's also drawing in disco influences on this album. Mm. So he's clearly listening. And I think he's just incorporating influences around him that he's comfortable with. You know, it, it's a really strong Oldfield album, I think, one of my favourites. And and the Jethro Tull album, Heavy Horses, they really sound quite gritty on this. You know, this is as hard-hitting and reminiscent of the dark days of the late 1970s as any kind of new wave album from that period. They d- they do not sound as if they're going into that goodnight gently. You know,
0: To me, when I listen to Heavy Horses, and I've, I'm intimately familiar with the album because I remixed it, there's nothing on that album that tells me they've listened to yeah. new wave music at what, all. What do
1: you know about that album? What do you know about it? I mean, you've mixed it, you've done it in five point one, you've lived with it for months. What do you know about it? I think I think that time will come
0: in Jethro's Tull's career, and I think it will come a couple of years later with the album A. I think right
1: right no, now, I don't think it's got new wave. I don't think it's new wave. To what I think. I think it's gritty in the sense that. Um, Songs in the Wood is full of keyboard textures and intricate vocal harmonies. This is a guitar album. It reminds me a bit of Led Zeppelin Presence. So I don't think it's a new wave album in any sense, but I think it's got a tremendous sense of energy and quite a stripped-down sound in the way that I think of Achilles' Last Stand on Presence.
0: OK, I think you should go and listen to it again, Tim. It, it, it...
1: <laughs> I've listened to it. OK. The Mouse you... Police Never Sleeps. By God, Joe Strummer didn't sleep when he heard that. He tit- was frightened. The title track, Heavy Horses, Moths, they're, they're as flowery
0: and as bucolic as ever, I would say, on this record. I think Joe Strummer but- couldn't sleep. He'd heard the future. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, but I think the point, is, the point is, still, is still valid. You know, A Song for All Seasons, Renaissance's album this year, it's as bombastic uh, and epic as an, an uncompromisingly old-fashioned and symphonic as anything they've been doing through, you know, through the through the decade to this point.
1: Um, and all the better for it, because Gentle Giant, yeah. you know, did compromise around this time. I think there are two albums where they sound like they're caving into company pressure, making more commercial albums, and it doesn't really suit them, in my opinion.
0: Is it just that some artists kind of closeted themselves away and kind of, you know, put their fingers in their ears and just went, no, 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 I'm not listening to what was going on? Uh, in terms of punk and new wave and the kind of changing of the guard, and other artists kind of almost felt obliged to take on board that and try and adapt with the times. And it's the ones that, in a sense, didn't try and adapt and just ignored it and just carried on doing what they were doing that made the more successful music around this time. I,
1: I agree. Or is, there a,
0: or, or is there a third category of people that actually did, you know, go with the times and did manage to pull it off? And would that include, therefore... Genesis and what they did this year, and then there were three. The Genesis album I like. Hurrah. (laughs) I I really like this record. Now, partly because I'm very nostalgic for the time that I remember going into Rumbelows in Hemel Hempstead High Street and buying Follow You, Follow Me on Seven Inch Single, which is probably the first time I'd ever heard Genesis. And... And it's such a beautiful single, and I remember hearing the album shortly afterwards and really, really, really enjoying it, not thinking of it necessarily as being anything to do with progressive rock. Is this the sound of a band going with the times, or is this the sound of the band completely ignoring the times? Because it, in a way, it couldn't be further away from punk and new wave, could it? But at the same time... It is a more, as we know, in retrospect, having now, certainly I I know in retrospect, having heard the rest of the catalogue up until this point, this was a new, stripped back, more direct approach to making pop music for Genesis, wasn't it?
1: It was, although it's still pretty dense, the production, especially if you listen to the original vinyl version of it, where it's very heavy on the bass pedals and incredibly complicated drumming and one of the things I think this album shows is that it's one of their more delicate ballad heavy albums in a way, but when you listen to a track like Down and Out, you realise that they're really quite a powerful band as well. You know, there's and real energy in what they're doing. But and that track, of course, is about the new wave artists out there, the new commercial point of view that could completely destroy Genesis. Um, So there's some kind of acknowledgement, but yeah, you're right, it's the antithesis of the Squeeze album from this year or the Clash album from this year. Um, But in some ways, all the better for it because it's got these rich, exotic Tony Banks chords, these lovely melodies. And like you, buying the 7 Inch Follow You, Follow Me was what got me into the band. Saw it on top of the pops, loved the song, bought it, um, loved the B side went to a friend's house where his brother had the album and was quite entranced at the time by the cover. I'm not quite sure I would be now, but the cover even had a real sense of mystery about it in the way that Pink Floyd covers did. And, of course, it was Hypnosis who were behind it. And Pink Floyd I was very well aware of at the time. I don't think I knew that much about Genesis at this stage. But um, I just liked it as a great pop single, Follow You, Follow Me. And... um, as you say, you know, are there different ways? You know, some bands respond to the trends and manage to do it well. As we said, Bill Nelson, Peter Hamill, maybe even influencing um, the the zeitgeist. And then other people fall behind and other artists become a bit scared. You know, as we've said, the Gentle Giant album, where they're going in a more American FM friendly commercial direction, presumably influenced by their record company. Um And then you get albums like Incantations or Going for the One where it sounds as if they were just in, I don't know, a cellar for a year and didn't hear what was happening around them. You know, they'd been a part of a religious cult and just emerged out of the silo. What
0: about what I mean? You know, there's another band that are kind of on the cusp of becoming a little bit more commercial at this time, which is Camel with the Breathless sound, which I, I love this record. You know, it's a band that are becoming more pop, more streamlined. Influences of disco music again on Breathless. But to me, pulling it off. I, I, I believe them. I believe them on this record. Again, in a way that I don't necessarily believe, yes, when they're, although I do like tomatoes, we discussed, but I don't yeah. necessarily believe, I don't believe that they believe in it. But I believe that Camel actually believe in what they're doing. And that I think that's the difference. Uh,
1: I think you're right, Isabel, because we've always said, you know, b- b- although it's hardly our favourite music, but Genesis of the 80s, they were being true to their influences and they were embracing contemporary technology. And I, and I think you're right. And then there were three, it sounds like music that Tony Banks, at the very least, wants to make. So I want to I want to give a special
0: mention to my favourite progressive rock album of this year, which is an obscure one uh, by the French group Ange, Goutte Goutin which I think means ambush in French. Now, this is an album that I heard many, many years ago, almost by mistake. A friend of mine got went on holiday with his big brother to France um, and came back with this record. And I'm not quite sure why he bought it or what, Turned him on to it, but he came back with this record, this band Ange. Couldn't understand any of the lyrics, but I was completely transfixed by it. And they still remain to my day, to this day one of my favourite bands. It is something like J- if Jacques Brel formed a progressive rock band, they might sound a bit like Ange. It's got that. It's it's very Gallic in that. It's very Gallic in mm. that sense. It's very unique. A very very powerful singer. I don't know what he's singing about most of the time. Christian Decamp Um but this band are completely unique in in a similar way to the, the other of course famous french band that sing in a language that no one can understand magma they have a similar uniqueness to them that um something i've never heard from any other so called progressive rock band and this record is their is their masterpiece i think and it's strange because it comes in a year when a lot of the progressive rock bands are turning away from the more ambitious music and they make their most ambitious epic, polished record, ending with a 15-minute-long song, Captain Cur de Miel, which I think means Captain Honeyheart, if you can believe it. Very dramatic, very, very theatrical indeed. Um, So I want a a big shout. Are
1: you even familiar with this album, Tim? I probably have heard it. I mean, I've heard most of the orange releases from the 70s. And um, I think... They're more obviously symphonic rock. I totally get what you're saying about if Jacques Brel were in a prog band, this is the band. So they do have something that's quite unique, and it's that French chanson quality that they bring to progressive music. But they also have slightly more of a conventional symphonic prog element than magma. I mean, magma are real. Oh, well, magma are completely out on their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: So in that sense... If you're a fan of symphonic progressive rock, you're going to find points of interest in Ange But yes, they come at that with a big difference. And there's there's almost a kind of an edginess in it that reminds me slightly of Hamill at times as well, yes. because they can be yeah. quite intense.
0: Yeah, it's very theatrical, very dramatic music. Um, lots of Melotron for Melotron lovers on this record as well. Um, yes, yeah. But very, very creative. And actually, the other album I want to just give a shout out to, because I think in many ways, along with the Orange record, it's the most creative um, of all the progress- so-called progressive rock albums made this year, which is Steve Hackett's album, Please Don't Touch, which is a very, very strange, uncompromising, ambitious, epic record with... One of my favourite songs of all time on it, sung, sung by, strangely, by Randy Crawford. And, and of course, the, mm. the, the singers on this record, Randy Crawford, Richie Havens, the guy from Kansas, who I can't remember his name now, these are not obvious singers for a... Steve quote, Walsh. Steve Walsh, thank you. These are not obvious singers for a, quote, unquote, progressive rock artist to be employing, to be hiring on his record. So there's a lot of black music influences on this record too. Yeah, yeah. That song, um, Hoping Love Will Last, of Randy Crawford, is one of my favourite songs of all time, stunning vocal performance. But Steve's really going for something creative and stretching out and, and, and trying to do something very different here. Perhaps, you know, with, ve- with sort of varying results, some tracks not so successful, the carry on up the Vicarage song <laughs> kind of, a, a yeah. s- not so, but strange, a strain, if it's a failure, it's a very strange um, and uncompromising failure, I think is kind of what I'm saying. There's nothing about this record that smacks of compromise. No. Uh, uh, you know it, it's a it's a so that's what i mean when i say it's one of probably one of the most creative if not the most creative record made by a progressive rock band or an artist i mean
1: Hope glove will last is a great r&b ballad to the point that it could be a standard in that field um and i think richie havens who has a wonderful voice i mean one of my favorite vocalists actually richie havens it's great to hear him in that context and i think what's nice about it is Steve Hackett's throwing quite exotic chord voicings and unusual arrangements at these singers. And these singers are bringing qualities that you don't normally hear in that type of music. So it's quite a fresh combination. And and of course, you know, it goes off and some fairly um, unusual musical tangents as well, the instrumentals on this album, the voice of Nikam, all of this. Well, the
0: way Side 2 unfolds is just amazing. I mean, it's just one of the great sides of music for me, starting off with the Randy Crawford Ballad, which, as you say, he throws some quite odd... Harmonies and chord voices at, at mm. voicings at them. These are not conventional uh, soul R and B, uh, you know, chords that they're singing over. And then you have the the, the very experimental ambient pieces, and then you have the the big, uh, you know, very discordant full-on, very aggressive and dissonant instrumental Please Don't, the title track in the middle of the side,
1: Mm. and then
0: you end with that multi-part sweet piece, Icarus Ascending, with that long, hey Jude fade-out for the end of the record. I mean, to me, it's a beautifully paced sequence of music side two of
1: that record. In some ways, he's producing traditional progressive music, but he's incorporating very different influences into it. So it is both traditionally progressive while being progressive at the same time, but not having anything from the new wave, not really having anything from the disco or the electronic music that was, if you like, seen as the cutting edge at that point, but it's still quite a progressive album. You know, his guitar sounds on it are really interesting for a star. I think you've missed the UK album. The debut UK album is a great progressive rock album, but I think it's a, a very strong record for what it is, really. I
0: mentioned it in the context of it being an interesting time for a band like that to be launching, yeah, yeah. launching themselves, you know. Uh, at a time when you 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 know you're supposed to be forming punk rock groups, here here comes a an unapologetically you know full on prog old old fashioned progressive rock group. Yeah. yeah. Now, electro pioneering. This is a, a fantastic year, as I think we've already touched on for electronic music in transition. Now, if we start, there's a lot of great records coming out of Germany, electronic records coming out of Germany this year. We have. Man Machine by Kraftwerk, which of course has their most famous songs, some of the most famous songs on it, The Model, um, Robots. This is kind of defining, this is the archetype of Kraftwerk albums in a way, isn't it? And in that sense, it is the archetype for electronic music to come because Mm -hmm. what are Kraftwerk, if not, along with the Beatles, arguably the most influential group in history? because of all the electronic music that would follow in their wake.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's a funny... Um, cause I know it so well, really. And I think the difference between The Beatles and Craftwork for me is that whereas I can listen to Revolver or Magical Mystery Tour and I'll always find something fresh in it, something unexpected that I'd not heard the first time or the 30th time, I know through playing Man Machine a lot, almost every note on it, because it's so precise there aren't any surprises with the album. And you've said this before about albums like Dark Side of the Moon and The Court of Grimton King, and I kind of feel like with Man Machine, that I know it so well, in, in a sense, and it doesn't surprise me. But yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great album, some magnificent moments, and, and in some ways it's their definitive album. And what's interesting is at the time it was slightly mocked. You know, I remember in *Enemy*, Melody Maker, Sounds... Um, the promotional photographs were used often as kind of humorous bylines for the papers. You know, although it's now seen as this and deservedly seen as this innovative electropop statement that in effect creates the early 80s. At the time, it wasn't necessarily seen as that.
0: I mean, that's it, isn't it? This This album creates... Virtually creates a whole decade. I mean, I think along with I Feel Love by Donna Summer, th- this record and that single mm. almost are responsible for the next 10 years of music. Um, I mean, it's impossible to think of bands like New Order, OMD, Gary Newman. Um, it, you know, even, even Detroit, you know, the whole genre of Detroit yeah, techno, yeah. which, of course, was the basis for so much electronic music that came after it too. All comes from from this record from this record and the Donna Summer record um, I mean I'm, I'm I mean, you know I'm generalising here but there is a sense that that is the case could we imagine ZTT the label existing without you know the whole Paul Morley thing existing without craftwork I can't hmm. I can't imagine I can't imagine that without craftwork and there are so many stories you know there's that story that's so oft told by artists seeing David Bowie uh, on Top of the Pops in 1972 doing Starman. And I think the other story that's almost a cliche because it's so t- told so often is young musicians seeing Kraftwerk, hearing Kraftwerk around this time and yeah. almost having their whole musical map redrawn in an instant by just hearing one record. And that this is one of those records, isn't it? There aren't that many records like this, but there, are, this is one of those records, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah, although it's funny with Kraftwerk, I guess. I I, I really like some of their early experimental stuff. I love Trans Europa Express. I really like um, the album that followed this 1981, Computer World. It's great. I thought that was great. And and that might actually be my favourite Kraftwerk album. As I said, I think with this one, I'm slightly jaded because I've heard it so much because actually my, my son got into it at one point. And I remember we were in the car and we were continually playing Man Machine, as it happens, The Laughing Gnome, and um, and The Beatles. And I never grew tired of The Laughing Gnome and The Beatles because there were bits and pieces in the arrangement, perhaps the organic production, that just meant that I could find something fresh each time. But by the 50th time I'd heard Man Machine... I was almost hitting my head against the steering wheel.
0: Okay, I mean, is is it because it's so pared down? I mean, that's that's the beauty of this music, isn't it? It is, it is minimalist. It it is like a minimalist sculpture. It's like paring music down. It's like removing. I mean, actually, although I think the the, the lack of humanity on on the Kraftwerk albums from this period are, are is kind of overstated, because the mm. voices are still very fragile and frail, and they're they're not singers, are they? They're very, no. un- they're very underachieving voices. So they haven't completely eradicated the humanity from, from the music. It is still quite frail and fragile.
1: And there are, so, there are some pretty melodies on it as well. Very People much. forget that yeah. great pop melodies, but also pretty melodies. And I always quite like the idea that they had this idea of, what was it, if, if the Beach Boys had been manufactured by machines, that was yeah. craft work. And I think that was part of their um, modus operandi. And, and they succeeded.
0: No, but I, I mean, I, it's not my favorite Kraftwerk album, but I think it is the one. It's the one. My favorite. Yeah. My favorite. I'm sorry, I probably prefer Radioactivity, or, or as you say, Pocket Calculator. But I. I okay, sorry, Computer World. Um, but I think this is the one that obviously is the Sergeant, the Sergeant Pepper of electronic music, isn't
1: it? Except the difference is that when Sergeant Pepper was released, it had that impact immediately. Right. You know, you talk right. of everybody who. The reviews for it were superlative. The people spent time listening to it, you know, it right. was changing lives in the, in real time. This, as I've said, you know, I, because I'd kind of just started dipping into the music papers at that point. I remember Kraft work for quite a number of years, almost being figure of, figures of fun. And actually that was also true of bands that I was really liking who were up and coming, like Human League, who I think had their debut album this year. And I thought the Human League were quite special but there was something about them, perhaps the image, that at that time, the gritty post punk, it was slightly mocked in the music papers.
0: Maybe in the music papers, but I think for musicians all around the world, these these bands, Kraftwerk, Cabaret Voltaire, as you say, Human League, were blowing minds and changing people's parameters you know, in, uh, almost yeah. overnight about what music could be and what should be. Maybe that Man Machine, is a better better comparison, would be the Low trilogy, the Bowie trilogy then, because obviously at the yeah. time, again, that didn't have a big impact, but it's cast a shadow over music ever since, hasn't it, and continues to do so. As indeed to two more records on the list here, um, the Eno records from this era, Music for Films and Music for Airports, the first in the Ambient series. I mean, these have cast a shadow over over everything, not just everything termed ambient, but, you know, all kind of experimental music kind of owes a debt in a, in a way to, to what Eno was doing at this time, don't they? So, I mean, here's something that's not a new notion, really. I mean, ambient music is not a new notion. I would go back to albums like Tangerine Dream Zeit or even things like, like Karlheinz Stockhausen's Hymnen, you know, in the 60s. But... This idea of music as pure texture is filling a room Mm. with a kind of sound, a feeling, music that's almost there to be ignored. I mean, this is even something that you could say, music to be ignored. Martin Denny, you know, Exotica, uh, easy, easy listening music from the 50s and 60s. But Eno is the first person to kind of put it in words in a way, encapsulate the concept. This is music to put on in the background. You can ignore it if you want to. But you know in a sense it it, it does the music a disservice because music for airports, music for they're so beautiful aren't they and they're so engaging as records.
1: Because I think there's a human element, there's an accidental element and obviously you could go even further back on the ambient side because I think Eno said one of his main influences was Eric Satie and Eric Satie often made music to be heard in the background of restaurants It was this idea that the music would be an accompaniment rather than forcing itself on people. But yes, you're right. The melodies are very, very beautiful. And sometimes there's a human element, whether it's Robert Wyatt's voice, whether it's the um, Percy Jones bass playing on music for films. There's something about it that's quite... Fragile. And, and, of course, some of these ideas are explored on the album he did this year with the two guys from Cluster as well, Rodelius and Mobius. Mm-hmm. He did an album with them, which has got some wonderful pieces on it. Um, I mean, he was having a, a fabulous year, clearly. But, yeah, it does transcend ambient because I think you're right that a lot of what's been made in its wake either sounds like a pale parody or it just doesn't have the melody or the humanity of something like Music for Airports.
0: Yeah. And as you say, there's a very human element to it. The, the, just the, the fact the piano uh, on the first track on Music for Airports is very slightly out of tune. It's very, that could be, yeah. <laughs> it's very slightly out of tune, but it gives it a lot of character. You know, it's, 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 it's it's got a grain to it, which a lot of ambient music doesn't have. And I think that's yeah. why it still stands up, even though it's been much imitated. And in theory, this music is very easy to imitate. There's nothing to yeah. it. There's nothing to it. But there is a magic to these records.
1: That, that... And, and you hear that its influence isn't just in kind of rock music. You know, you could probably hear it, as we said, rock music through the age, obviously ambient and electronic music. But you can hear it in classical music, Arvo Pertz, Alina, um Bang on a Can, the classical troupe from New York, did a cover version of music for airports. Uh, Philip Glass, of course, has covered Eno and Bowie's work. So eventually it's, it's spilling into other musical genres that were very different from it.
0: Well, certainly there's a whole generation, I think we talked about this before, there's a whole generation of neoclassicists that have grown up with people like Eno and, and Aphex yeah, Twin yeah. and Radio, you know, the Max Richters and the Nils Max Fronk Richter especially, yeah. 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 Also, I think it's worth mentioning this year that um, in, coming out of Germany, we have uh, a Tangerine Dream album, which is Tangerine Dream kind of doing prog mm. for the first time in the career. Now, and you're not a fan of this record, Tim. Uh, I really like this record, Cyclone. It, the vocals are mad. Um, And and not particularly good. But they they only occupy about 15% of the whole record. And I get frustrated sometimes. People say, oh, that's that record with those terrible vocals on. (laughs) The vocals are on the record for about four or five minutes on side one. And that's it. Uh, there's more, there's live drums, there's more guitar, there are more conventional progressive rock structures. There are other things about this record that are very different, like Steve Jolliffe, woodwinds, flutes, clarinets, oboes. It's a really unusual record. I wouldn't say it's completely successful,
1: but it's a fascinating record and it sounds like nothing else in their catalogue. I don't know, I just, it's one of those I feel I should like it, but I never have, and partly it's because I've always found. The drums a bit clumsy, the guitar solo is a bit uninspired. I think the more conventional rock they became, the less interesting they were. I mean, I think, you know, the early albums are staggeringly inventive. I really like that early run of um, more electronic, ambient Virgin albums. And actually, I really like what they're going to go on to do. I think there's a couple of albums after this. Tangram, I think really interesting and if anything they really define the sound of the 80s as much as Kraftwerk because if Kraftwerk influenced electro-pop think of those Tangerine Dream albums from 1980 to 82 that is the sound of American cinema for the next 10 years when they'd jettisoned orchestral scores and they went the electronic way I think Tangerine Dream even in the 1980s were hugely influential on worlds outside of their typical one, but this is just probably one of the only albums from their classic period that doesn't quite make it for me, really. Uh,
0: we also have Klaus Schultz making one of his great masterpieces, X, the double album. Um, many ways, this is the most ambitious, definitive uh, Klaus Schultz album, working with real orchestra, very long pieces. Mm. It, Klaus just recently passed away, which is, is very sad. He'd been ill for a, some time, apparently. Um, if you want to investigate Klaus Schultz, I certainly would direct you to, to this album as one of his defining
1: masterpieces. I mean, is that I do think, yeah, I agree yeah. with you. I think that is a great Klaus Schultz album. I mean, he, during that period, didn't seem to make anything other than ambitious, interesting albums, and that arguably is the most ambitious. And then we have Popple Vuh. Have we talked about Popple Vuh on the show before? Probably mentioned them.
0: So, Popple Vuh this year released two albums related to the film Nosferatu, the Werner Herzog film Nosferatu, the first of which was an album that they just made, a Popovur album they made, called Bruder de Schatten, Son des Licht, which I think is Brothers of Darkness, Sons of Light. And then Werner Herzog took most of the music from that album and used it in his movie Nosferatu. So there was a second album called Nosferatu, the soundtrack, which included pieces from the previous album and some new music too. Anyway, I digress. One of the most profound moments in my discovery of music as a teenager was seeing the Werner Herzog nosferatu film and seeing the opening credit sequence with the music of popplver the title track of brothers of darkness sons of of light which if you remember the title sequence of that movie is just these close ups of skulls this kind of uh, crypt and these skulls and this music which is got to be one of the most haunting pieces of music popover seem to come from they seem to be anachronistic in a way in the sense their music seems to belong to no time no time period at all it sounds somehow ancient but modern do you know what i mean by that
1: yeah I do cuz you know there is a crossover with Brian Eno in the sense that it has this timeless haunting ambient quality but Brian Eno doesn't have this kind of ritualistic almost folk element you know there's a there's a drone folk element in some of Popover's music and you're right you know it it works brilliantly in the films with the images but equally it's something you can listen to with headphones late at night and be lost in this sound world. It's a, but it's, it's got an almost atavistic quality.
0: It's almost like music that cavemen could have made or druid, yeah, yeah. druids could have made, you know, uh, millennia ago. It seems to somehow exist in the ancient past, but it's also obviously using electronic music and uh, there's the synthesizers involved too in some of this music. Um, and then the combination of that with the, the Herzog film for me was one of the most profound musical epiphanies I've ever had in my life. And I went out straight away and bought, I think I bought a compilation of, of Popover and discovered this incredibly unique, again, we use that word a lot, unique, Florian Frick had just this incredibly unique approach to music that almost sounded like he wasn't aware of anything else. That was happening in the world of music um, at the time. It just exists in its own little bubble again, doesn't it? And again, we talk about yeah. that a lot. Do artists that seem to exist in their own little bubble? And I think
1: he always did. I mean, whereas we can hear that Tangerine Dream, in some ways, you know, come out of the psychedelic '60s, and then they anticipate ambient and electronic, and then they anticipate, you know, some of the electro pop. They're always responding to or inventing something. Pop over just are.
0: other great electronic albums from this year, Equinox by Jean-Michel Jarre, his second album, follow-up to to Oxygen, again, just as good as Oxygen, I think. Yeah. We also have um, Throbbing Gristle releasing their second album, a confusingly type, titled DOA, the third and final report of <laughs> Throbbing Gristle. It was actually their second album. Their se- their first album had been called Second Annual Report. I think we talked about Second Annual Report, didn't I?
1: I Wax lyrical. We about did, yeah. You, you yeah. made me listen to it, and you hated. I quite it. liked it. Oh, did I know you? I didn't. No, I thought It was all right. Yeah. No, I was relatively favourable about it. All right. You thought it was all right. <laughs> yeah. It was all right. This. is quite uh, pretty. Pretty.
0: <laughs> this album is, to me, it's not the revelation that the first album is, but it does have one of the most unsettling pieces of music I have ever heard in Hamburger Lady. That is a song that will send a shiver up your spine and into your very bones.
1: More so than The Swans? More so
0: than The Well, it's different to The Swans. It, the Swans is pure nihilism. Throbbing Gristle is just creepy when they when they just get, when they get it right when they hit that sweet spot as they did on tracks like Bait on the first album and this album Hamburger Lady it is in it will chill you to the bone it's the creepiest shit I've ever heard in my life and it, as you know me you know I, yeah, I mean yeah. that as a as a great compliment the creepiest shit. I I've, I think I told the story about when I got Michael Ackerfeld over to my house and we were listening to records and he was trying to gross me out with all the sickest death metal he could and I remember (sighs) just putting on Slugbait and Hamburger Lady uh, and playing it to him and he was just like okay I give up you've won (laughs) that's the sickest shit I've ever heard in my life Anyway, I'm going to go for the
1: Pictures album from 1983. That is pretty sick in parts as well. Well, we'll have to... Did we, did we
0: cover that in the 1980s? No, we? we've
1: not done 1983. We've not done 1983.
0: I know you're a big fan of that record, but we'll have to do 1983 <laughs> just so you can cover that record. But anyway, <laughs> for now, we really need to wrap up on 1978. Team. We've, we've still got two categories, which I think we should just swiftly move through. Otherwise, this 1978 is going to turn into a whole season in its own right, which you might say, what's wrong with that? Well, anyway, we're going to, we're going to go through the last two categories. Jazz. I think it's fair to say jazz, probably not a great era for jazz. We've talked about this before, how jazz, the second half of the 70s, was not the equal of the first half of the 70s, was it? Let's face it. Mr. Gone by Weather Report. Weather Report, well, Mr. Gone, they've gone for me by this point, (laughs) I'm afraid. They've gone off.
1: I mean, yeah, look, I love early Weather Report as well. You know, for me, my my favourite probably around the 74 period, uh, Mysterious Traveller. This, I think, is quite interesting. I think it's very different for them. I don't think it's like any Weather Report album before or after. And again, they sort of anticipate electronic pop. There are kind of more concise pieces, more pronounced use of synthesizers and electronic beats. We've got Sun Ra
0: hitting a peak for me, possibly my favourite Sun Ra album from this year, Languidity. Which is a little bit like a, which is a little bit out of time. It feels like an album that should have been made five years earlier, because it's it's got that classic scorched earth jazz fusion style, but it's Sun Ra doing his version of it, a very kind of luminous, uh, experimental, atonal, dissonant jazz record.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's his most accessible album. I think there's a dreamy quality to it. To me, it's kind of. It's in a silent way, 10 years on. And there are almost aspects of disco and R&B and some of the guitar playing. But as you say, it has this dreamy, woozy, narcotic quality. But it is a lot more dissonant than in a silent way or than the Weather Report debut. That's another album that has that kind of quite Mm. floating jazz quality. Um, Yeah, I think it's quite a lovely album, actually.
0: Yeah, definitely recommend Sun Ra Languidity from. The, if you want an entry point into Sun Ra, this is the one I would I would suggest because uh, it is quite formidable discography, isn't it? To, to be investigating
1: very much.
0: Uh, There is also some great... I'm a big fan of Anthony. I've discovered Anthony Braxton the last couple of years. Some fantastic Anthony Braxton albums from this year. He made about 10 albums in this year. We always give short shrift to ECM because there's so much quality in the ECM catalogue and so many records that are, I wouldn't say interchangeable, but they have the ECM aesthetic done. They have the ECM sound. There are some good ones this year. We have... Uh, Eberhard Weber's Colours, Making Silent Feet, Terry Ripdel's Waves, uh, Keith Jarrett's Belonging from from his European quartet. Not wishing to dismiss ECM because you can barely go wrong with ECM, can you, uh, in the 70s? One final category before we wrap up, Tim, is uh, just a a brief mention to classical serious composition, because I know that you and I agree that this year produced one of our favourite pieces of music of all time, so I remember that you and I, Tim, both waxed lyrical about um, Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach in a previous episode as one of the kind of pinnacles of of, uh, of minimalist music, 70s mm-hmm. minimalist music, which, we, you know, we're massive fans of minimalist music, aren't we? Uh, and so many of the artists that we like, you know, from the rock uh, genre uh, have a lot of elements of minimalism in their music. Yeah. Einstein on the Beach is, is one of the twin peaks of minimalism. Surely this is the other one. Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich, just one of the most beautifully hypnotic, organic, inspiring, hypnotising pieces of music. I can listen to it endlessly and not get bored with it. I think I'm going to be bold here and say (laughs) I'm pretty sure you agree with me, Tim, right?
1: Yeah, entirely. And I think I even listened to it this week and didn't get bored of it because that must have been my uh, 100th playing over the last 10 years. Yeah, probably this week. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, Steve Reich is, is... when push comes to shove, out of all of the minimalists, he's my favourite. I mean, this may not be my favourite piece of his. I really like the underrated To from nineteen eighty two. I think that is gorgeous, and I love electric counterpoint as well with the uh, Matheny on guitar. But yeah, this is.
0: But this is a but this Atelier is utterly mesmeric, Yeah. Well, it's also pivotal, isn't it? Because this is the piece that kind of defined him, I think, um, in a sense. So much of what came after was the you know in much the same way as Einstein on the Beach much of what Philip Glass did after Einstein on the Beach was kind of referencing that piece everything Steve Reich did after Music for 18 Musicians kind of goes back to this piece for me there's a kind of curve up to this of course Mm -hmm. he's you know working towards this piece but then he creates this masterpiece and in a sense you know it's in some senses it's him finally breaking away from the influence of Terry Riley's in C. This yeah. is where he finds
1: his voice. And I think the thing is that despite the repetition and despite it being mesmeric, and we've talked about this before, it's not mechanical in any way. It's actually quite spiritual. No, it's something the
0: opposite. absolutely yeah.
1: Often very uplifting and then often very melancholic. He manages to make shifts in the music that manipulate your moods as much as they manipulate tempos and musicians.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's incredibly emotional music. And of course, this is one of the accusations that's so often thrown at minimalist music. Philip Glass, I think probably suffers from it more than Steve Reich, because obviously so much of his music is made up of these kind of repeating arpeggiating patterns. Steve Reich has a lot more harmony and melody in his music, but I'm generalising there, but I think that's broadly true. But it's, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. I find a piece like Music for 18 Musicians incredibly emotionally engaging, incredibly moving, um, which gives lie to that kind of cliche and that accusation that it's just, just, you know, it's mathematical equations played out. Also this year we have um, the aforementioned John Adams' Shaker Loops, beautiful piece of music Mm -hmm. also. Robert Ashley's Private Parts, which is a a very strange – if I remember rightly, that's the one – is it the one that's written for narrator and sitar or something? Yeah, it's quite an odd lineup, isn't it?
1: It is because it's, it's again, it's sort of slightly pitched in that New York no wave, new wave scene as much as it is the classical scene, and it was a huge influence, I think, on Laurie Anderson. I mean, I I, I suspect that she must have known this intimately. So it has these this quite dry American voice reciting quite eccentric stories over textures and repeated lines and so on. It's it's really interesting stuff. So, Tim, we
0: finally got to the end of 1978. Well, testament to what an amazing year it was.
1: Well, I think that, you know, we said this before, this period, I think especially 78 maybe to 82, 83 is where you're still getting great statements by older musicians who are still producing superb work and then you're getting a tremendous number of fresh talents absolutely reinventing so you're getting the best of both worlds and of course some of the older um artists also um establishing new forms of music it's a very exciting period and of course it kind of coincides with um us maturing as listeners as well you know there might be an aspect of that but I still feel it was a a very special time and this year but also as we said it was an era of great singles you know in the first episode about 1978 that as much as it was a superb year for albums I remember buying single after single after single in so many different styles you know in a band like Blondie whose parallel lines came out this year. It was such a brilliant year for pure pop music, pure dance music. Um, there was real fresh life breathed into it.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, obviously you and I were buying... I was buying singles because it was all I could afford to buy at the time, to be fair. But uh, but yeah, I mean, as you say, some amazing singles, yeah. Um, okay, Tim, this is the million-dollar question. <laughs> <fresh year. laughs> no! How on earth can you boil 1978 down to one album that you would take over all others and one album that you would consider more influential above all others? Is it possible?
1: I think it's possible to come down to few for influential, for sure, because we can see that Kraftwerk, Man Machine, there's no doubt that influences the decade to come. We can see that Brian Eno's Music for Airports influences... The next few decades in classical electronic, you name it, so i 'd put those as amongst the most influential for me i 'm going for Brian Eno, yeah. music for airports, craftwork, man machine
0: It would be very difficult for me to take issue with your choices there, Tim. I think they are clearly uh, the front runners in terms of most influential, but there are also quite you know records that are influential in perhaps a quieter way, you know like the first Die Straits album kind of is the beginning of a new strand uh, of sort of, you know, dad music or whatever you want to call it, (laughs) sort of crossover, more kind of mainstream accessible music that might appeal to people that still like to hear people playing real instruments.
1: Yeah. And, And as we said as well, the Chic album in terms of its production, I think that was hugely influential over the next decade. In terms of the album that I would take with me, it's so difficult. Because, you know, the Steve Reich album is certainly one that I would never want to be far away from me on that desert island but in terms of albums that had an emotional impact on me at the time that i still kind of listen to i mean it's a weird trilogy actually patty smith's easter which has got a couple of heartbreaking ballads as well as some raucous rock and roll but the title track of that is superb and a track called we three i always found really engaging um the genesis album i've got really fond memories of discovering that and loving its lushness but I'm going to go with an album that was not particularly liked at the time and is now considered her worst but I think the album that had a massive impact on me in 1978 and that I will still play and still get the occasional shiver from and I guess it's uh, interesting because it is her moment because she's back in the top 10 in Britain and America with a single that's 37 years old but I'm going to go for Kate Bush's Lionheart as my personal favourite.
0: I love this album, that would definitely be a contender for me too. The ange record I absolutely love this record uh, Pond, uh is probably my favorite progressive rock album of the year I mean there are so you know so many post punk records that I just think are amazing, like white music x t c uh strangler's black and white magazine 's first album, mm. the first police album, the first public image album I mean what a year, what a year generally speaking it 's just phenomenal isn 't it in in all respects um Anyway, I think we'll have to quit while we're behind there, um, and just say what an amazing year. The The best album of 1978 is probably the album called The Best of 1978. which And,
1: be a, and I believe it's a 78-disc compilation. A
0: 78-disc box set, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay, Tim, well, we finally managed to get to the end of 1978. I think job well done there. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be back soon. I always say that I know... <laughs>
1: Yeah, we'll be, we'll be back in 2024.
0: OK, let me, let me just rephrase that. We'll be back. But for now, uh, we'll say goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review. And also, you know, we need to revive the Reader's Letters page, don't oh, we? we? do.
1: Well, I did read them. I did read them last time. I mean, a couple of complaints.
0: Well, we need to hear more of those complaints. We need to hear lots of praise, lots of praise. And just maybe one or two complaints just to keep it interesting. It it
1: was more about Bruce Springsteen, really, that people felt we'd been a little unfair on the boss, that he did come from a slightly worse background than we implied.
0: I've never been a big fan of Bruce so long ago. I can't remember what I said about him. I've never been a big fan. Oh, you were horrible about him. Was I? No I wasn't. No, because oh. I quite like a few of I like I like Nebraska and I like the ghost of Tom Jones. I like those stripped back albums.
1: Philadelphia, great track.
0: Yeah. Th- yeah. But I've just never loved him. Isn't that what I said last time? I'm probably repeating myself. Why are we talking about this? We're supposed to be wrapping up the episode.
1: <laughs> you were so horrible about him.
0: Let's lit On that bombshell, on that bombshell, we'll say goodbye. Oh, I was going to say,
1: sorry, T-shirts. Oh, for fuck's T-shirts. If you haven't got one, get one. So what, tell us about the T-shirts, Tim. We've got two beautiful T-shirts. Olive green, graphite yeah. grey, available from burningshed.com. You heard what Tim said, folks. Go and buy your Album Years
0: t-shirts now. For now, it's goodbye from me and it's
1: goodbye from me.